0: Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, speaker, Pastor Steve Benninger delivers a message from the series, Portraits, Jesus, Who Are You? Entitled, Come and See. You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or The New Life Church Gehenna mobile app.
1: The next day, again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's Word.
2: I was thinking about um, our role in the world as the light, um, pushing back the darkness. You know, I've heard that the owner of the Nazareth restaurant is, I've been told he's from Israel, and I've heard that he's a strong believer named Hani. And uh, I just got to thinking, what if, so I'm just putting this idea out for your consideration, okay? What if this week we all patronized that restaurant and showed up and you know, to, to to tamp down fear and push back the darkness a little bit. We showed up, we ordered, we tipped well. We offered to pray with the servers there, with the owner if he's there, with the other patrons. I mean, what might that say in terms of just, you know, being a witness for Christ and, and just pushing down the fear? So I'm throwing that out there for you. I'm gonna do it, and um, I would encourage you to give that consideration as well, all right? Well, I do want to welcome all of you, and and including all of you who were here for the first time last weekend for our friend day, and uh, I'm glad you've come back. And I'm super glad that you've begun this journey with us, this adventure we're on of exploring the life and the teachings and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we've seen that our guide on this journey is, is a man who knew Jesus very well. He walked with him, he talked with him, he ate with him. Basically, as a young man, he lived with Jesus for three years and that's the disciple named John. You know how some people are really fascinating when you first meet them initially, and then you know, you're wanting a relationship, and then when you, you press in and get closer to them, you're kind of disappointed because there wasn't much there? Well, Jesus wasn't like that. The people who knew Jesus, the more they knew him, the longer they knew him, the more they were fascinated and captivated by this amazing man. And I believe the same is going to be true of us as we get to know Jesus better through our study together. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter one. If you haven't pulled the study guide out yet, you're gonna wanna do that to uh, track along with me. And last weekend we noted that John the disciple wrote his Gospel with a particular aim in mind. He had a goal in mind and his intent was to build a case. Do you remember me talking about that? To build an airtight, irrefutable case that the Jewish rabbi that he had been following was more than just a rabbi. He was actually the creator, God himself. A human being, yes, but also deity. God in the flesh. And I tried to show last weekend that this is a key point where Christianity and Islam part ways. The identity of Jesus. And this isn't just some minor issue, is it? This is not a peripheral issue. This is central. Because while Muslims believe that Jesus was a high-ranking prophet of Allah, sent here to be Allah's messenger and proclaim his message, Christians believe that Jesus was and is the great I am. God the son, the eternally pre-existing living word. And and I want to say again that that this modern day effort to kind of erase the distinctions between Islam and Christianity to, to try to harmonize them by saying that we both believe in the same God and that Allah and Yahweh are, are the same and that we follow the same Jesus, in my opinion, that, that effort, that attempt is really disingenuous. Because the Muslim version of Jesus bears very little resemblance to the Jesus we see in our Bibles. At the same time, I wanna say that the real Jesus calls his real followers to love our Muslim coworkers and to love our Muslim neighbors and our uh, fellow Muslim students on campus. Amen? I mean, our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God, and our king has been here, and he's gone before us, and he's set the pace for us in this, loving all people, including his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so while we Christians may believe that our Muslim friends are wrong about Jesus, We must still love them and engage with them and serve them in the name of the Lord and and especially pray for their eyes to be opened to see who Jesus really is. If there's any upside to the rise of jihadist Islam in our world, and there's not much of an upside, but if there is one, it's that many nominal Muslims have been prompted to start questioning their religion There are now reports that thousands upon thousands of Muslims are becoming curious about Jesus. And some are reporting um, having uh, dreams and visions where Jesus is appearing to them in their dreams and, and reaching out to them and offering himself to be their hope and their salvation. And I think that's great, and I think we ought to pray that that will increase and intensify as time goes on. Well, now to John 1. And uh, the account that we heard read moments ago from Terry is the account of Jesus meeting his very first disciples. Obviously, we see John here continuing to present testimony, eyewitness testimony about Jesus from the people who knew him firsthand. You might recall, he started in the opening of this chapter, chapter 1 of John, with his own testimony. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, he wrote. And so we saw that John's witness was that Jesus is God in the flesh, he's the living word, he's the creator, all things were made through him, he said, that he's the light and the life, he is God the Son. That was his testimony, and then he added testimony from another John, not John the disciple, but John the Baptist, and you remember His testimony that that Jesus was superior to him. John said, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoelaces. That's where I fit in the pecking order (laughs) or the ranking. John the Baptist further went on to call Jesus Lord and the one who would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. He called him the Lamb of God and the Son of God. Now in today's passage, John is going to add some more testimony and this time from men named Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. And finally he's gonna add a word from Jesus himself. So in verse 35 of chapter one, the section opens with John the Baptist hanging out with a couple of the young guys who were drawn to him and followed him in his ministry. And just the day before was the day John had pointed out Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But apparently not a lot of people you know, shifted their allegiance in that moment So now it's a day later, and John is ministering, and again, Jesus walks by. (laughs) And John says, there he is, again, the Lamb of God. And I think, in essence, he was saying, look, I I know you people have been coming out and listening to me and letting me baptize you. I know you've been looking to me for guidance in the ways of God, but I'm telling you now that, that Jesus is the one that you should be going after and following and listening to. Not sure why you didn't go after him yesterday, but here he is again, so go for it. And this time, some did, and, and specifically these two men. And when that happened, this begins the diminishing popularity of John the Baptist. And that was actually something that he had predicted and that he wanted, right? Didn't he say, he must increase and I must decrease? And so, beginning at this point, John the Baptist begins to do the fade as more and more people will leave him and start going over to Jesus. And that was okay with John, that was okay with him. So it says these two guys make their way over to Jesus and Jesus Jesus notices them and he turns and he asks them a question in verse 38. And the question is this, what are you seeking? What do you want? And they reply by inquiring where he is staying. One fascinating thing to me about Jesus is the way that Jesus engaged people by asking them questions. Poignant questions, incisive questions, heart-revealing questions. And we're gonna see that a lot in the book of John. And and why did Jesus ask people questions? Was it because he didn't know the answers? (laughs) I mean, he was the omniscient son of God, right? So why didn't he just go around making authoritative declarations all the time? I know you people. I know what's in your hearts, I know what you want, I know what you're seeking. Sometimes he did that, but more often, especially when talking with people one-on-one, he sought to draw them out by asking them questions. By the way, if you want to evangelize like Jesus evangelized, he's given us a pattern to follow. Ask people questions. Sometimes we want to start by just kind of, you know, telling them what we think and here's my opinion and here's what I'm all about, But Jesus often started by taking an interest in other people and finding out where they were coming from. And he'd ask these questions, just kind of draw them out. And expressed care and concern and love for them and interest in them as individuals. And I think we would do well to follow his example, don't you think? And so here he turns to these two new followers of his and he asks them, what are you seeking? And I'm telling you, I could preach a whole sermon on that one question. What are you seeking? Our answer to that question is one of the most determinative things about us. What do you want, I could ask you? What are you after? What are you seeking? Jesus knows we need to hear ourselves say what it is we really want in life. One of the things we're gonna discover about Jesus is his ability to both change our wants and to become everything we ever wanted and dreamed for and hoped for. He knows that starts with us identifying the deepest longings of our hearts and being willing to own them. So he turns to these two guys and says, what are you seeking, what do you want? And they kinda, I imagine them kinda looking at each other you know and then like, "Uh, we wanna know where you live, we wanna see your pad. (laughs) Some commentators say that was a dumb answer to Jesus penetrating question. Maybe it was, I don't know. Judging from the rest of John's gospel, it is true that Jesus was always talking on one level and then people responded on another level. Often Jesus was talking deep and spiritual and and people would respond surface and physical. True? Think about John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking with Nicodemus about being born again. You can't see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, unless you're born again. And Nicodemus starts thinking, well, how do I curl back up and get inside mommy so I can come out again and be born again? <laughs> In John chapter four, Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman about a thirst that she has. A thirst that can only be quenched with living water. But she thinks he's talking about some special kind of well water. In John six, Jesus tells a crowd, he says, I am the bread of life. I've come down from heaven to nourish your soul. But they think he's talking about some wonder bread, some cool kind of wonder bread. And so here, it could be that Jesus wanted to get deep into these guys' souls and get them to to bring to the surface their heart-level longings and ambitions and desires. What do you want? What do you want from me? And they say, we want to see your bachelor pad. We want to see where you live. Aren't you glad Jesus is patient? Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't just snuff us out when we say stupid stuff or do stupid stuff? His reply is so intriguing to me, and this phrase is key. It shows up twice in this section. We want to see where you live, Jesus. And what does he say? Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. And later, Philip is going to find his friend, Nathaniel, and he's also going to bid him, come and see. And it strikes me that this little phrase, this invitation is a metaphor for everything that John wants to accomplish in his gospel account here. Come and see. Come and see Jesus for who he really is. I mean, do you think Jesus was just saying, hey guys, sure, yeah, come on over and see my place, check out my new 60-inch flat screen, check out my new granite countertops, my stock fridge, My patio and fire pit out back, it's really cool. Do you think that's what Jesus was saying? Or do you think he was saying, come and see for yourself who I am. You heard John call me Lord, you heard John call me the Lamb. Just come, follow me, live with me, hang out with me, form your own opinions about me, see if you think John was right. You know, the longer I live, the more I'm convinced that so much of following Jesus has to do with seeing. With seeing. Am I I seeing God for who he really is? Am I seeing Jesus for who he really is? Am I seeing people the way Jesus saw people? Do I have his eyes? Am I seeing life correctly, accurately, through through the clearest lenses? You know, the Bible is filled with calls to see to behold, recall us talking about John the Baptist when he cried out, behold the Lamb of God. Later on this John will write, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Something about seeing Jesus is transformative in our lives. Paul wrote, we are transformed as we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Non-believers, it is said, are are blinded to the glory of God in the face of Christ. They can't see him. They need the blinders removed. They need his eyes to see. We all need his eyes to see, don't we? Well, what does John want us to see in this account of Jesus' first meeting with his disciples? And I, I think there are several things. First. I think John is calling us to see Jesus as the one who is worthy of being followed, don't you? Behold the Lamb of God and the guys go and follow him. He was the one who is worthy of being followed. Now, several authors have recently noted the difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus, and there is a difference, right? Between someone who, who, who likes Jesus, so I like Jesus, who admires Jesus for his good qualities, and one who decides to scrap all their plans, jettison their agenda, cash out, and chase Jesus with everything they've got. There's a difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. We know the difference, but what turns a fan into a follower? And I think there's a clue here, because in verse 36, John the Baptist cries out, behold the Lamb of God, and in verse 37, two guys immediately head over and begin to follow Jesus. Why? I think it's because for the first time they they truly saw Jesus as the lamb. He's the lamb. I mean, here's the one who came to be slaughtered in my place. The one who's gonna lay down his life to take care of my sin problems so I can have a relationship with God. He's gonna give his life for me. How can I do anything but give my life to him? There is no other response that that makes any sense. He would love me that much to be, be the lamb to shed his blood for me, to lay his life down for me. How can I do anything other than follow him wherever he leads me the rest of my days? Whether I have five minutes left or five days or five years or 50 years, I'm gonna follow that man, the lamb. I think John would tell us, when you truly see Jesus for who he is, you will ditch your ambitions, (laughs) you'll embrace his agenda for your life, and you will follow him, you will pursue Jesus, if you see him. And then to kind of fill out that portrait of, of a Jesus who is worthy of being followed, John then bids us, number two, to see him as certain other people saw him. Remember, John is constructing a case here for Jesus' identity, so here we see him including the testimony of, as I said, three other witnesses, three other young men who became, who would become John's cohorts in following Jesus. First, he introduces us to a guy named Andrew, who in verse 41, when he goes to talk to his brother Simon Peter, he says, we have found the Messiah. Then he introduces us to Philip, who goes and talks to his friend, Nathaniel, and in verse 45 he says, sounds similar, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And then the third young man is Nathaniel himself in speaking to Jesus, in verse 49 he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. So now, we have the accumulated weight of the testimony of how many people? Five, and we're only in chapter one. John, John, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel. And note that each of these guys were Jewish and that they'd been trained in the Old Testament since they were just little fellas. (laughs) And when God opened their eyes to see this 30-year-old Galilean man for who he really was, They immediately connected all the dots from what they had been taught of the Jewish scriptures. See, they knew the promise in Deuteronomy 18 that God had given to Moses where he told him that one day he was gonna raise up a prophet just like himself and put his words in that prophet's mouth. They knew Psalm 2, they knew 2 Samuel 7 where it was promised that a mighty king would come who would restore the glory of Israel and rule over God's people, and that he would be God's son, as it says in Psalm 2. Their parents had taught them from a young age to anticipate the arrival of an anointed one, a Messiah, a king, who would one day come and break the bonds of oppression and set his people free, and on this day, when Jesus of Nazareth was standing right in front of them, they saw him with enlightened eyes, and they knew, this is him. This is him. He's here. He's here. But interestingly, not only did they see him, but he saw them. Sure, it's true in one sense that Andrew and Philip said we have found the Messiah. But in another sense, isn't it even more true that it was the Messiah who had found them? Who had orchestrated these meetings in the first place? Who had opened their eyes, revealed to them his true identity? Think about that, what an honor, what a privilege to be found by the Messiah. Have you been found by Jesus yet? I hope so. Aren't you glad that Jesus comes and chases people down and opens their eyes and reveals himself to them? Aren't you glad that he does that with people like Andrew? Think about Andrew. Andrew had always been known as what? Simon Peter's brother. He had lived in the shadow of his brother all his life. Hey, aren't you? Aren't you, uh, aren't you that loudmouth's brother? Aren't you that brash kid's brother? What was your name again? <laughs> you know, always swallowed up, always in the shadows of this, this other guy, his brother. And now he has his own encounter with the Son of God. Aren't you glad that Jesus pursues and captures the hearts of people like Peter? Brash, loud, impulsive, always sticking his foot in his mouth, saying stupid stuff. Aren't you glad Jesus chases down people like that too? Aren't you glad Jesus chases down what many believe to be a more introverted person like Philip? Any introverts in the room? Kind of shy, withdrawn? Aren't you glad Jesus chases those kinds of people down as well and reveals himself to them? Aren't you glad that that Jesus captures the hearts of even Prejudiced people like Nathaniel? Racists like Nathaniel? Aren't you glad that God is no respecter of persons in this regard? He doesn't disqualify us from knowing him based on our personality? I sure am. And John wants us to see and follow and love the Jesus that he knew, that he loved, that he followed the Messiah King that these guys encountered and were were captivated with. And get this, here's another insight. Number three, John wants us to see Jesus as the one with authority to declare our identity and transform our lives. I'm not sure if you followed the sequence here as Terry was reading it, but here's what happened, okay? Andrew and a buddy had been disciples of John the Baptist, right? After John points them to Jesus, they say goodbye to John. They start to follow Jesus. Jesus invites both of them over to his apartment for the day. When Andrew realizes who Jesus is, he goes and finds his brother Simon and brings Simon to meet Jesus. And so they're standing there talking and Jesus looks at Simon and he sees Simon not for who he is in the moment, but for who he will become by his redeeming grace. On the spot, with no apologies to Dwayne Johnson, Jesus changes this man's name from Simon to the rock. (laughs) That's what Cephas means in Aramaic, rock. That's what Peter, Petros in the Greek means, the rock. (laughs) So think about that. Hi, I'm Jesus. I'm gonna change your name. (laughs) Who does that? Who does that? Who looks at a person and says on their first meeting, I'm gonna change your name. I'm gonna declare who you really are, your identity. Who does, does that? I'll tell you who. The one who made us. The one who gave us life. The one who sacrificed himself for us and cleansed us and declared us to be holy so that his Holy Spirit could reside in us and begin to transform us into the people that we've always longed to be, the people that he wants us to be. That's who declares our identity. John wants us to see Jesus as the one who by virtue of being creator, life giver, and lamb has the authority to declare who we are and to command our destiny. Listen, who I am is defined by Jesus, not by the world. Not by my middle school peers back in the day, not by the people I work with or who are on my campus, not even by my family, not even by the people who love me. My identity is defined by Jesus. And who I will become will be ultimately determined by his will, not the will of others. Aren't you happy that Jesus sees you when he looks at you, not for all the junk you've done in your past? How many of you have junk in your past? How many of the rest of you are lying through your teeth? (laughs) You need cleansing from the Lamb of God this morning. Listen, we all have junk in our past. Aren't you happy that Jesus doesn't look at us for that? He doesn't even look at us for the mess we might be in the present. But he looks at us for the person that you will become through his redeeming grace. Simon, I see you. I see you but I'm seeing who you're gonna become, you're gonna be a rock. Now listen, there's gonna be stops and starts, right? There's gonna be victories, there's gonna be setbacks. This same man, the rock, would deny Jesus three times. There's gonna be stops and starts, three steps forward, two steps back, there was that in Peter's own journey, but in the end, Jesus will prevail And you will be as much like Jesus as you can possibly be while still being you. It's guaranteed to true, genuine followers of Christ. Praise God for that. And there's something else John wants us to see when he includes this very interesting and intriguing account of how Jesus met Nathanael. Number four, John wants us to see Jesus as the one who knows both our internal condition and our external condition. He knows us inside and out. So follow the storyline here. First, Andrew met Jesus, then he brought his brother Simon Peter to meet him. Then Philip is introduced to Jesus, and he goes and tells his buddy Nathaniel about him. By the way, doesn't that tell us a little bit about how the gospel spreads? Is it not best transferred person to person to person? Through relationships, from friend to friend. I like the little saying I heard one time. Found people, find people. Kinda stuck with me. Found people, go out and find other people. That's what Andrew did, that's what Philip did. When you've been found by Messiah, you don't wanna keep it to yourself. You want others to get in on it too. This is how Christianity is spread, this is how the vision of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is spread most naturally through relationships. Sure, big events like stadium rallies and big huge crusades like Billy Graham has held all through the years, even like the event we had here last week, Friend Day, those are fine in their place, but you know the impact is multiplied when there's a personal relationship. When we bring a friend to friend day and then afterwards go out to lunch together and talk about what, what we discussed or at lunch the next day at work talking about it because there's a rela- an existing relationship there. Christianity spreads best through personal contact. It rides down the rails of relationships. That's how it advances. I love this. So Philip he says, I gotta go find my buddy Nathaniel and tell him what I've what I've discovered. So he, he seeks him out, he finds him, and he says, look, we found him. Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. And what does Nathaniel say? It's kind of ironic given what's happened here the last few days. Nazareth? Seriously? <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Does this not smack of stereotyping? <laughs> there did exist in that day a kind of hometown pride or community rivalry between the various towns there in Israel. Kind of like our high school rivalries today. It's kind of like, you know, Gehanna folks saying, can anything good come out of Upper Arlington? I mean, seriously? Nathaniel's comment could have been a common derogatory saying back then. Certainly revealed some prejudice How in the world could the Messiah be from that side of town? Of course, we know that Jesus was actually from where originally? He was born in Bethlehem, but he did grow up in Nazareth. In any event, I love Philip's response in verse 46. We heard this before. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what does Philip say? Come and see, come and see. Just, Just come and meet him, Nathaniel. Then form your opinion about him. Don't jump to conclusions based on which side of town he's from or which side of the tracks he was born on. Just meet him. Which, by the way, is a great way to combat stereotyping and racism. Just meet him. Get into their life. Do life together. Find out what's in their heart. Draw them out. So Philip takes Nathaniel to meet Jesus. So envision this now, they're kind of walking, walking towards Jesus, Philip and Nathaniel there, and as they get close enough within earshot, Jesus calls out, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no guile. Meaning, he's the real deal, he's not a pretender, no pretentiousness, no phoniness in this guy. What was that about? Well, some commentators think that Jesus was doing here what he had just done with Peter, that he was speaking into Nathanael's life what he would become by the grace of God one day, a true, blue, transparent man of integrity. It could be. Others believe Jesus in his omniscience, Jesus who knows everything, was simply pointing out a a virtue, a a character quality in this man that he knew because he knows all people. That's possible. Still others see this as Jesus specifically commenting on that statement that Nathaniel had just made about nothing good coming out of Nazareth. Like, well, here's a guy who just says what he thinks. (laughs) No pretending in him. What you see is what you get. I'm not exactly sure which interpretation is correct. Maybe it's all three. But it's obvious from his response that Nathaniel felt something out of the ordinary was going on here, right? Because he's like, wait a second, how do you know me? We, we, we've never met. How do you know what kind of person I am? How do you know what I'm like? In verse 48, Jesus replies, Well, before Philip called you while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, Nathaniel was sure that something supernatural was going on. It seems like in an instant, everything clicked. Look at his response. Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Was that his response because he knew that when he was sitting under the fig tree he was miles away? Like how could Jesus know where I was? That's the most likely explanation. Let's not be sure, or let's be sure not to miss the point. John wants us to see Jesus as the one who knows us both inside and out. He is the omniscient, omnipresent Son of God who knows each of us better than anybody else does. I want you to know that Jesus knows your situation today. He knows. He knows where you are. He knows what's going on around you in your world. He's aware of the challenges that you face at work. He knows, he's aware, he feels the struggles that you feel at home or in your marriage maybe or with your kids or maybe in caring for your parents. He knows what's going on in your outer world, your situation, your circumstances, and he knows what's inside. He knows what's going on in here. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking about right now. He knows your feelings. He knows if you're losing hope or thinking about giving up. He knows your character, he knows your inclinations, he knows your desires, he knows what you're seeking after. He knows what you want, what you're ambitious for. He's God, he made you and I. He knows us, he knows what's going on in the inside and I wonder, does that give you any comfort today? I hope it does. When I think about the fact that Jesus knows what I'm thinking right now, what I'm seeking after, what I want, it gives me great comfort and it makes me very convicted at the same time. He knows what's in my heart. But John is going to show us that this Jesus, who knows all about us human beings, despite knowing that, despite knowing our deepest, darkest secrets, Still, set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem to go and pay for our sins because he wanted to be with us. He wanted to have a relationship with us of love that will last forever for us to be part of his family even though he knew that about us. Who does that? There's a lot of humans when they find out things about us they go whoa I don't think we're gonna be hanging out much anymore. Jesus runs towards us, aren't you glad of that? Praise God for that, we should praise him for that. Man, when we truly see Jesus, our hearts will be drawn to follow this one who is the embodiment of grace and truth, grace and truth, from whom we have all received grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, amen? Well, there's one last word of testimony in this section. We've seen John appeal to the witness of Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, And finally, here's the witness of Jesus himself, verse 50. And Jesus answered him, Nathaniel, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? <laughs> you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man and that is not what I would have expected him to say here. (laughs) I would have expected Jesus to say, Nathaniel, you're gonna see greater things than these. You're gonna see healings. You're gonna see exorcisms. You're gonna see me turn water into wine and walk on water and raise people from the dead. You're gonna see greater things, Nathaniel. But instead, the Jesus who always surprises me said something else. Did Jesus ever surprise you? (laughs) Now, the key here I think is to remember what Philip had told Nathanael. He told Nathanael this, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. And I think Jesus here wants to reinforce that. This notion of, um, you know, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Does that ring any bells to those of you who know your Old Testament? It's like you know there's something back there, right? Yeah, it seems like that came from the Old Testament somewhere, it does. It came from something Moses wrote. Let me read you this account from Moses contained in Genesis about Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, when he was running for his life, fleeing from his brother, he was out in the desert Here's Genesis 28, verse 11. And he, Jacob, came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Man, time to call mypillow.com, don't you think? And (laughs) switch that out for something a little softer. Anyway, verse 12. And he dreamed. And behold, there's that word, There was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There it is. And behold, the Lord stood above it, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land, Jacob, on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. So here's God reaffirming his covenant with Jacob's ancestors, with Abraham and Isaac. Verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. He named it Bethel, which means house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So now can you see that Jesus was referring to this? Can you see, number five, that Jesus wanted Nathanael to see him as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament stories? The consummation of of those writings. So he's standing in front of Nathanael, right, and he's basically basically saying this, look, Nathanael, I'm the ladder. I'm the stairway to heaven. I'm the bridge that connects heaven and earth. I am the house of God. I am the gate of heaven. I am the one who opens access to heaven and to God. That story, Nathaniel, it's about, it's about me. You're gonna see the angels ascending and descending, not on a ladder. He said, on me. I'm the bridge. I'm the staircase. Nathaniel Philip was right. I am the climax and the aim of the Old Testament writings. Those stories were all types and foreshadowings and glimpses and prefigurings of the reality who is now standing in front of you, Nathaniel. I am the sacrificial lamb. I am Jacob's ladder. I am the real tabernacle where God communes with men. I am the true son of David, the anointed one who was promised. And as we're going to see in the remainder of this book of John, Jesus is going to reveal himself even more fully as the true and better Adam, the true and better Noah, the true and better Isaac, the true son of promise, the true and better vine, I am the vine, the true and better Israel, really the goal and fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament stirred up a longing for. Jesus is going to say, I'm it i met. What are you going to do with me? Church, that is the Jesus we meet in John's gospel. And because of that, he's worthy of your life. He's worthy of my life. He's worthy of your worship, your intense, faith-filled, exuberant worship. And mine. He's worthy of you following him with all of your heart all the remaining days of your life. A good friend of mine here going to the hospital just the other night with heart problems and they did all the tests and everything and I could tell he's thinking, you know, I'm so old but I don't know how much longer I have. All the days of your life. So I'm compelled to ask this morning, do you see Jesus that way as supremely worthy of everything that you are and everything that you have? Do you see him that way? Do you have eyes to see him that way for who he is? Do you have eyes to see Jesus as everything you've ever wanted, everything you've ever hoped and dreamed for, fulfilled in him? If you say, Steve, not yet. I'm not there yet. I, I would say to you, that's okay. Just keep on this journey with us, as we walk through John together. God will get you there. God will give you eyes to see his son the way he sees his son. And your life will never be the same. So much more of Jesus to behold in the pages of this wonderful book. And so let me pray that God will give us eyes to see. Our Father, our precious Lord, there's so much we would not know about your son if we didn't have this book. I mean, we might be able to deduce a few things from creation and and so forth, but like the things we learn today, we we wouldn't know them without your word. We thank you and praise you for giving us the holy scriptures. I think of all my brothers and sisters here today, Lord, in the body of Christ. I thank you for them. Lord, May you turn any who are merely fans of Christ, will you turn them into followers? Will you give them a vision of Jesus that is so compelling that they trade in their agenda for yours? Would you do that, Lord? Would you win to yourself more followers of Christ? And Lord, for any in the room today who are not yet believers, I pray, I ask of you, Lord, I plead with you to give them eyes to see Jesus, turn their non-belief into belief, into faith, Lord. May they exercise faith, even if they only have a small, little, tiny, mustard seed size faith. May they put that faith in the right person. and Will you cause it to grow and bear fruit unto eternal life for them, Lord? We thank you for this amazing portrait of Christ. Will you please amaze us and astound us and astonish us as we walk through your servant John's account together. And Lord, may our following and our worship and our evangelizing be reflective of the Jesus that we see. I pray in his name.
0: Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.